streaming SoundCloud. That's right. We are, uh, oh yeah. We are still not back on iTunes, not to smite our techno overlord, but man, you'd think those turtleneck nerds in Cupertino would be able to reapprove a podcast in less than a fortnight. Anyways, this is rounding third. I am Jeff Besselman, and you know what's cooler than the iTunes store? Google. Ha! <laughs> uh, apparently, Google announced yesterday that they're legitimately making a driverless car. Well, guess what? That's what we are. Driverless sports broadcasting. So sit back, take your hands off the wheel, and get ready for a baseball that cannot go faster than 25 miles per hour. This, once again, is rounding third. One of the most beautiful things about baseball is that with so many bizarre statistical measurements, pretty much everything that ever happens on the diamond is some new record. Like, oh, here you go. Jacoby Ellsbury has become the first Navajo grandson of a professional rug weaver to hit two singles in a game on a cloudy day while also wearing two different colored socks. <laughs> but this week, a real record was achieved. Reigning Cy Young Award winner Corey Kluber of the Cleveland Indians earned 18 strikes in a nine-inning game. Kluber is the first player to achieve this feat in 15 years and is now on a short list of 19 guys to ever do this. Along such greats like Roger Clemens, Sandy Koufax, and Nolan Ryan. Now, whenever a pitcher strikes out 18 batters, it is a big deal. And his 18 strikeouts were against the St. Louis Cardinals, who currently have the best record in the game. They are the hottest team. Given Kluber's Cy Young Award in 2014, you'd think there is more to come from this guy. Well, that's not necessarily going to be the case. He has struggled this year prior to this game, going 0-5 in seven starts. So what is it that causes a pitcher to go from the best of the best to 0-5 to setting some crazy record? Well, much to the dismay of some baseball executives, I think we're at the point in baseball where stellar defense has taken a front seat to home runs and offense. This might be because we're in an era of baseball where guys aren't willing to take on as many risks to hit home runs at absolutely any cost. And because of that, obscure pitchers are going to pop up on radar having thrown phenomenal games and may come out for phenomenal seasons. Pitchers now are facing more natural, and there's quotes, natural batting lineups as opposed to the ones before that were fed with all of that genetically modified corn. Now, there's another part to this story. Kluber actually earned his 18 strikeouts in eight innings, not nine. He was relieved by closer Cody Allen, who finished the 2-0 game with the save. Lots of baseball fans were upset about this, wanting to see Kluber go out with the opportunity to set the record for the most strikeouts ever in a single game which would have been 21. But for all of the times people say, oh, they should have left him in there, there are plenty of other painful memories of players being left in too long. Um, Pedro, you remember that guy? 
closing pitchers, this is what they're paid big bucks to go out and do. Win games for the tired arms. Managers are paid big bucks to prevent meltdowns. And Kluber did exactly what he was paid for. Go out there, mow down some birds, and come back inside before it gets dark. I think the Indians made the right call by putting in their closer, even if it would have been cool to see the most strikeouts ever record broken. Rumors uh, have surfaced this week that the Colorado Rockies may be interested in trading fan-favorite shortstop Troy Tulowitzki to the New York Mets. Tulowitzki, a revered defensive talent known for his strong arm and his two gold gloves, has denied that any talks are underway. But that's what they always do. They always deny it until it happens. But it could be one heck of a trade for the Mets if they can pull it off. This kid can hit, which is an especially coveted trait for shortstops, where defense is usually a lot more important than offense. And the Mets are in need of a shortstop, considering that their current resident at that position is Wilmer Flores, who already boasts nine airs this year and is batting a barely passable 240. New York has tested the trade water since last offseason on what the Rockies might want in return for Tulo services. But frankly... Yeah, I think the iceberg, which will sink this Titanic deal, will be the extravagant dowry Colorado would want in return for their main man. Tulowitzki has an astronomical contract, $20 million a year through at least 2020. While in some trades, teams come to an agreement and split the cost of a large contract, it's reasonable to believe that Colorado would shift the entire financial burden to his suitor. And in addition to getting rid of a $98 million line item on their budget, bye-bye, they'd probably ask for one or two of any team's top prospects in return. Yeah, one or two of any team's top prospects. Basically, the only thing the Rockies wouldn't expect in return for Tulowitzki is somebody's firstborn. Oh, or you know what? That may also get thrown in there too. So would it be worth it for the young, agile, healthy shortstop from the Rockies? Oh, wait. He's none of those things. Tulowitzki, who is already 30, has missed 222 games to injury over the last three years, which, for those of you statisticians out there, is just shy of 50% of all games. The other knock on him is that he played his entire career at the most hitter-friendly park in baseball. Not to get all Bill Nye the science guy on you, but due to Denver's altitude, balls travel further when hit off the bat. While the venue itself only has so much impact, it's worth noting that City Field, where the Mets play, is one of baseball's least hitter-friendly parks. Just look at what it did to David Wright's hitting and power numbers after they moved out of Shea. All in all, this trade may sound like a hot summer blockbuster, but the logistics of pulling it off are just too complicated for the Mets to follow through. They've already got big contracts with aging and oft-injured players like Wright, Curtis Granderson, and Bartolo Colon. So, while a talented hitting shortstop might be their target, 
Troy Tulowitzki is too expensive and just too fragile to be a viable, smart option for the Mets. However, the Mets are looking great this season, so who knows what they may do to put them over the hump to compete come September and October. Move over, Jose Mesa. The Philadelphia Phillies have a new all-time saves leader, and it is none other than the fans' favorite guy to hate, Jonathan Papelbon. Papelbon is currently in the last of a four-year, $50 million deal, which he signed after he left the Boston Red Sox. He has seemingly been the only player to whom the Phillies gave a gargantuan contract that did not bite them in the rear, though I wouldn't put it past him if given the opportunity. He has been consistent and performed well, being among the league leaders in saves each year and being available to play, unlike other Phillies players like Ryan Howard, Chase Utley, Roy Halladay, none of whom have either been very good or very healthy. But despite being like their guy, Papelbon and the Phillies fan base haven't exactly had the best relationship. When it started out, <laughs> Pap was performing well and even called Phillies fans smart during an interview, something no one has ever accused any Philadelphia fan base of being. But the relationship, it's soured. It has soured a lot, especially after Pap has consistently held to his Boston roots, going so far as to claim he would prefer to wear a Red Sox hat should he make it to the Hall of Fame. Pap, wait until you retire before you say that, not while you're pitching for another team. The final straw for fans, though, was last summer when fans booed him after an outing and he responded by obscenely grabbing his crotch as he walked off the field, prompting the home plate umpire to eject the flaccid pappy. And this year, being his last under contract, he is a natural trade bait item for the Phillies, who desperately need to rid themselves of as many of their expensive contracts as possible. But... Unfortunately for them, it's hard to trade away a star player that even hometown fans like to boo. Papelbon is only the second player in history to lead two clubs in saves, as he also became the leader for Boston and is primed to crack the top 10 leaderboard by the end of the season. Even at age 34, Papelbon could still be a threat to the likes of Trevor Hoffman or uh, Mariano Rivera, should he wind up on a team that actually has save opportunities every now and then. He averages 32 saves per year and has only been under that mark twice in nine years. Even if all he does is maintain the status quo, he could pass Rivera if he can stay healthy for another nine years. All of that being said, he may not be liked and he may be the bane of Philadelphia's existence, but man... That urological excretion appendage sure knows how to do a thing or two with balls. If you're still feeling a little sad about our episode two weeks ago, where there was nothing but well-balanced sportsmanship and no brutal beatings, I have just the cure for you. That cure? This week's recap. The Milwaukee Brewers beat up punched and decimated the New York Mets on Friday, shutting out the other team from New York 7 to nothing. 
Bartolo Colon gave up five earned runs over five innings while only striking out two. Meanwhile, Kyle Loesch and the Brew Crew knocked in two home runs and four doubles while striking out eight and leaving only one runner on base in scoring position all night long. However, credit is due to the Mets. They came back and won 14-1 the following night, so you know, that's pretty good. The Arizona Diamondbacks managed to chase Steven Strassipants Strasburg off the mound in the fourth inning after taking him for a joyride of seven earned runs on Tuesday. With the exception of the Diamondbacks all-star Paul Goldschmidt, every single starter on the team, including the pitcher Rubby De La Rosa, got a hit in the game. Washington's offense wasn't exactly quiet in the game either, knocking in six, including yet another Bryce Harper home run. But those six were no match for the 14 put up by Arizona, who managed to put away the game in less than three hours. And finally, the Pittsburgh Pirates achieve the much-coveted triple play last Saturday, recording three outs in 10.1 seconds in what was baseball's first ever 4-5-4 triple play. Here's what happened in slightly more than 10.1 seconds. The Pirates pitcher was on the mound in the top of the second, no outs with Jason Hayward and Johnny Peralta on second and third. He throws a strike to Cardinals batter Yadier Molina. Molina hits the ball on a high line drive to right field, but out of nowhere, Pirates second baseman Neil Walker leaps up and brings the ball down, recording the first out of the play. So now, both Hayward and Peralta need to tag up or can be forced out. Walker, still with ball in hand, charges towards second base for the tag, but realizes that Hayward has either failed to realize the ball was caught or simply forgot that he was a baseball player for a minute and has stopped running halfway between second and third and is starting to walk off the field. So instead of taking a few extra steps to get the tag, Walker fires the ball to third baseman Jung-Ho Kong, who forces out runner Johnny Peralta by a mere six inches. Peralta apparently forgot to come back to the bag as well. With two outs down, that's right, Walker's was the first, the tag at third was the second. With two outs down and a still clueless Hayward looking like a Newfoundland trying to find a comfortable spot to lie down on a bed, Kong cocks his arm and fires the ball back to second. As soon as he does this, the clued in, but oh too late Hayward, turns to run to second, but is forced out by Neil Walker for the final third out. So despite all of that, the Cardinals assembled a rally in the fourth to take the lead 5-3, to three, only to blow it on a double to Jordy Mercer in the sixth. Final score of the game, 7-5 to five Cardinals. And that, that is our trouncing of the week. Folks, that is our show. We might very well try to get back on iTunes next week, but who knows? It has been a great day in the studio. I've got my little buddy Gavin here. Gavin's going to join us, but who knows? Throughout the season, I may have Gavin back more often. Anyways, Gavin, you want to sign us off for this week's episode? And what do I say? Ladies and gentlemen... Good night. There you go. Good job, buddy. Nailed it. (laughs) Yes, Gavin. Yes, you did. 
The Rounding Third Podcast is brought to you by producer David A. Robbins. Production in our New York studio is directed by Maggie Robbins-Besselman. Contributing writers for this week's episode are John Alcorn and Clayton Lawson. The Rounding Third theme song is used with permission from John Ross. Follow us on Twitter at RTPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Rounding Third Pod, or email us at roundingthirdpod at gmail.com. All materials published on the Rounding Third Podcast are subject to copyright, and all rights are reserved by the respective owners. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, I am your host, Jeff Besselman, with my buddy, Gavin Jenkins. Thank you for joining me, and I look forward to filling your mind with more baseball facts next week. <laughs>